G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thanks very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to John David Moore, otherwise known as David, who is doing a PhD in the history of pre-Confederation Canada under the supervision of Professor Jane Errington. Welcome to Grad Chat, David. Thanks very much, Colette. Happy to be here. Excellent. Now, actually, I first met David, it must have been a year or so ago now, at one of our writing retreats out at the lake. Did you enjoy doing that? Oh, it was wonderful. Oh, yes, it's (laughs) such a wonderful setting and serene, and uh, you get a chance to just focus right down and do your stuff right out in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, which is, to me, one of the best things there, because you can go for a swim or a hike, whatever you like, and and I always enjoyed the, the the fireside conversations in the evening. So, David, your research topic is the French-Canadian mariners on Canada's fourth coast during the early post-conquest era, 1760 to 1850. So it's quite a long time ago. Yes, it is. (laughs) Which is why you're in history, of course. So can you give us a bit of an overview of what that is and what made you want to do the study in the first place? Sure. In the late 18th century, which was after the conquest, the infamous or famous conquest of Quebec by uh, General Wolfe, that one, okay. Yeah. It's all coming so back to me, yes. So that's a Seven Years' War for, right. for, for those of us who have a milestone like that in mind. The uh, British took over the colony of New France, and one of the things that they discovered was it's very difficult to bring supplies or troops or people or food even uh, up the St. Lawrence River west of Montreal to okay. Lake Ontario. Mm-hmm. At the time, there were 12 whitewater terrible whitewater rapids with uh, waves as high as 15 feet, three meters. Oh, is that right? Uh, five meters. And the only way they could get up there was at first by canoe, of course, and mm-hmm. portage around them, but later by uh, wooden boats called bateaux. And they were about 40 feet long and they were crewed entirely by French Canadians. And during the Revolutionary War, the American Revolution, I discovered that they need, there, were, there were thousands of them, literally, right? hauling supplies for the British up the river to near Kingston, yeah. an outpost called Carlton Island. And not only that, but there were French Canadian sailors, mariners, on the lake itself who had built warships for the British. And I got into it by... Uh, I was... In my previous life, I've written for historical novels about the period. And one of them, I discovered this uh, uh, French-Canadian sailor who grew up at Fort Niagara at the other end of the lake and became the commodore of the French Navy. And this was the old French Navy, the Royal French Navy, before the Revolution on Lake Ontario during the Seven Years' War. And I had not, I'm a sailor and I've been interested in maritime history, but I didn't even know there was a French fleet, and it was all built in Kingston. Is that right? Yeah, at Fort Frontenac. Sorry, where's Fort Frontenac? Oh, it's down by the, just 
by the K-Rock Centre. If you drive out across oh, okay. the causeway, look left just before you turn onto the causeway. Yes. And there's some low stone ruins there. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah. That well, was the old Fort Frontenac. That was Fort Frontenac, built okay. around 1673. Okay. So this this guy, LaForce, and built and uh, helped to build his ships as well there and won the only skirmish on Lake Ontario between the British and the French navies during the Seven Years' War, the only skirmish in history. So anyway, I stumbled across this fellow when I was researching, and I became very interested in him because during the Revolutionary War, 30 years later, he was appointed by Governor Carleton to be the Commodore of the British Navy on Lake Ontario, a wonderful full-circle Canadian story. So I went back to school, essentially, to do an MA in history and learn how professional historians do biographies because I wanted to write about him. And I discovered halfway through my MA that there were thousands of these bateau men as well that nobody has really focused on. And it surprised me because there's always a sort of feeling that the French and the English never got along in Canada. And during this period, from 1760 up to the end of the War of 1812, my research is showing that actually there were thousands of these guys working for the British to, right. to during two major wars and invasions. And without them, I think Upper Canada, Ontario, and perhaps Canada itself would not have survived. And so they, I found them very interesting. Right. So it's interesting, though, because I, I, I know about the Seven-Year War. I wasn't aware that the St. Lawrence River was not that navigable in the early days because I thought it was always a really wide river all the way down to Lake Ontario. So when did that kind of change? Well, it fundamentally changed in 1959 with the creation of the St. Lawrence Seaway. But until then, they had smaller canals going around the rapids. And and as late as 1958 or so, you could go down to Prescott, just a little bit downriver from Prescott, Mm -hmm. and see the beginning of those rapids. And they they were horrendous. Uh, They they killed people in uh, in 1760 when General Amherst led an army of 10,000 down the river in boats to capture Montreal and the surrender of Canada, of New France. Uh, He lost uh, almost uh, 80, over 80 men in the rapids, just going through and having the bateaus turn over and being swept away. And Champlain himself, when he saw them at first in, I think that was around 1610 or so, he said they were, there was a dreadful, frightening, horrible sound like thunder. And now they're gone. They're totally gone now. So you can't... Well, they're they're gone until you get to the outskirts of Montreal called Lachine. And there was a canal, Lachine Canal is one of the first ones on the seaway. And there are still some rapids there that uh, kids uh, do uh, surfing on, on the standing waves. <laughs> uh, Love but, it. But most of the water has either been dammed from Cornwall up to here. Right. Or has been taken out and run through hydroelectric turbines uh, and enough. then put back into the river downstream. So... I mean, your research topic, part of the title was Canada's Fourth Coast. So by that, you're meaning the St. Lawrence River? I mean the St. Lawrence River and the Great Lakes. The, and the Great Lakes. nicknamed the Fresh Coast as well. So oh, we have okay. the Arctic, the Pacific, the Atlantic, and uh, on the southern border of Canada, it's the Fresh Coast, the Fourth Coast. Okay. See, I didn't know any of that. Makes sense, though, because whenever I see those lakes, those Great Lakes, I think, hmm, it's this is huge. huge. <laughs> they, extend, they extend halfway across Canada. Yeah. 
And so Canada, you can almost see as an isthmus. The West is attached to the rest of North America, but the Great Lakes separate us from North America. North America. Um, Yeah. Yeah, the landscape of Canada is fascinating. And and as an Australian, I love the fact there's so much fresh water around. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. Yeah, and it's really good that when I hear things like uh, that, you know, there's water restrictions, because even though I look out and go, really? Look how much water you got on those lakes. <laughs> but it's good that you're trying to protect the fresh water too. Yeah. So that's great. So that's me digressing as usual. So let's go back then to um, some questions about your research. Why is the work of these men and I'm assuming you're talking about the Bateau men. And, and, and the other fellows. And the others. Yep. Why is it important of these men, why is their work important to Canadians and the world? I mean, obviously there was an importance at the time. It Was it just in, during that time their importance or is there a still an important part to it now? Well, there's, there's certainly uh, strong links to Kingston. There was a French-Canadian, surprisingly enough perhaps to, to some of us, uh, there was a French-Canadian presence in Kingston dating from those times uh, right through the modern era associated with maritime activities in Kingston. Is that why, sorry, I'm going to just go butt in there a little bit. Is that why... It's always noted that Kingston is meant to be bilingual. Well, uh, that's part of it. Uh, certainly we have a heritage, uh, a very strong French-Canadian heritage here in shipbuilding and in sailing and it goes back to these times. And, and with Fort Frontenac there, a friend of mine, geographer and historian Brian Osborne, said that as far as he was concerned, during that era, the uh, late, six, late 17th, early 18th centuries, Kingston was the center of North America right. and the gateway to the whole interior, Niagara, the Mississippi River. Which makes sense. And the mm-hmm. west, all the rivers to the west and to the north. So sorry, I, I interrupted your, your train of thought there about the importance of these men. Yeah, so they're they're important in I think several ways. The the fundamental one that I became interested in was if my research can parse out what their thoughts and feelings were, mm-hmm. and and they were mostly uh, they left no journals, no personal journals at that's, all. That's a shame, isn't it? It is. A, it is a dreadful shame. And and the voyager, the canoe voyagers who were probably mingled with some of these guys as well, the Mm. same group of people, they left almost no record of themselves, partly because they were not literate, most of them, some of them were. So we have to try and figure out what they were thinking and why they worked for the British. This was only, you know, they started working for the British in the American Revolution, which is only a long decade after the conquest. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they're working for the British colonial overlords. And I've always been a bit curious about why did they do that? And partly, I think it's for cash. Right, yes. You know, they were all farmers. Well, yeah, and they've got to keep their livelihood going. Well, for sure, for sure. So at least partly it was for cash. Maybe that was the majority feeling. But the fact is they did it, thousands of them. Certainly as many as were working in the fur trade, which was the biggest economic engine of of Quebec at the time, Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was one reason. And the other one is because I'm a sailor and interested in maritime history. I became quite fascinated with both the story of the the sailing vessel uh, guys like Lafourse, but also these bateau men, and by extension into the sort of material culture even related to the bateaus themselves, because they were what they call a vernacular watercraft design unique to Quebec. Oh, is that right? Yeah, there's authorities in that field have said that they were double-ended, pointed at both ends. Right. With a crew of four or five, the fifth guy taking an oar at the back to steer. 
And they sailed. They had a sail they could put on them, and they pulled them up and pulled them up and rowed them up and sailed them up the rapids. And some authorities in that history, which I'm not uh, particularly of the material culture, suggest that that's where the New England and Newfoundland and East Coast dory design came from, was originally these bateaus. Right. Yeah, right. so so there's they're interesting and they're also interesting from sort of a labor history point of view. A lot of them were, I guess you could say, the statutory labor laws in Quebec were called in Lower Canada were called the corvée. And under the corvée, these guys were required to serve a few days to transport military supplies if necessary, a few days each year in lieu of tax. Okay. So right. so there was a certain coercion involved. And mm-hmm. so the relationship is a curious one. I've, I found it a kind of a fascinating story that, that really is not well known. So I'm going to go back to the bateaus. Are there any living samples of these bateaus? Have they all gone? Very, very few. They recently discovered in Quebec City, buried in the mud in the lower town, three partly intact bateaus, and they were able to extract archaeological evidence from those of of what they looked like, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. But the British and the Americans both also built their own versions of these after they discovered the French using them because they were incredibly useful. They're very robust, strong, able to withstand the rapids, and uh, European carpenters could make them really easily, you know, three planks on each side, and these Mm -hmm. were heavy planks. These are two-inch thick boards, and three planks lengthwise on the bottom joined at that, each end that doesn't seem very high on the side uh, no, the three plank these are big They're planks big? Oh, okay. yeah so so it was three or four feet high on the sides okay. and that's partly what helped them go through the rapids safely because they, they were the very coming in yeah, as much uh, yes uh, and they were very hard to capsize right and they continued on using mostly french canadian bateau men right through the 1830s and 40s uh, bringing supplies people and goods to kingston and you know 150 years they used these bateaus up the rapids and then they began to build canals to bypass the rapids and steamships came in coming through the Rideau Canal. Right. So right. they gradually faded away, but the bateaus, so there were still a thousand bateaus in operation as late as 1835. That's a lot. Yeah, it, it is. That's absolutely. A it was a, it's astonishing really. About these these French Canadian mariners, why do we know so little about them? I know you mentioned one, the fact that a lot of them weren't literate, so nothing was actually written down. But surely there would have been other historical writings from from the various towns where they're coming and going. Well, clearly not. <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's really the best records we have are during the two wars, during the American Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, when they essentially worked for the British Army. Right. And the army, many historians will know, were meticulous down to the last shilling for a bucket of mortar to account for everything they spent. Okay. Uh, there's there's pretty good records of how many served in this fashion. And it's peaked during the war and then went back to a few dozen when it was peacetime to keep the government bateau service going. Private sector, the fur trade used them too. Right, right. And hired them as uh, what they called on engagé for the trip from Montreal to Kingston, which took about two weeks, and then Kingston back to Montreal, which took about three days. Right. And we have the army records, but that's about all, except for occasional letters. A lady 
Simcoe wrote in her journal about the trip up the river in bateaus, and the Loyalists, they carried all the Loyalists up here, but they were, they were the truck drivers of the day, and we don't write much about the trucks. Right, Good Or point. take pictures of them ourselves, you That's know? That's true. So there was very little attention. We just take them for granted. And I'm, more and more I'm thinking during that era as well, the water travel and sailing ships themselves were taken for granted. It was just in the background. You used them, and Lady Simcoe doesn't record any of their names. Right. She talks right. about how they were they sang like voyageurs, you know, with the with rhythm of the oars. And but there's nothing, say, from their families. No. From their family, right? No, nothing like that nothing. at all. Nothing. Quite sad, isn't it? There's a whole period that's... Well, it, it is we sad. Know, and we know enough, but not enough. It is a bit of a historical, you know, knowledge gap that, that I think is, is unfortunate because uh, these folks helped build Canada. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt in my yes. mind. And there were so many of them. Uh, um, during both the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, there were up to one-third of all the men between 16 and 60 in the province working right. in the bateau right. uh, system, transport system. So... I think they are. They should be considered heroes of our survival. You know, there were two invasions by the United States yes. during that period that that could easily have at least captured everything west of Montreal. So, with these boats, I'm sorry, I'm fascinated about these boats now. With these boats, these bateaux, is that a design that came from France, or is it a design they put together once they knew what the terrain was going to be like? It's a very good question, and from what I gather, there have been a few papers written about them now in the last 10 years or so. From what I gather, these are truly a North American, French-Canadian adaptation, and I think they were what it appears to me, and I'm just speaking off the top of my head, not being a, uh, although I was a boat builder, I think what they did is they looked at the birch bark canoes. And oh, so from the indigenous From population. the indigenous uh, <laughs> peoples that they had, and they continued to use those, of course, in the fur trade on the northern route. Right. Uh, not up the St. Lawrence, but up the Ottawa and across to Lake Huron. They continued to use birch bark canoes because they were so light and, and portable. For all that portaging that they had yeah, to do. Yeah, for sure. But the portage on the St. Lawrence would have constituted about 70 miles. And, oh, wow. You know, okay. so, That's a long so way. Yeah. It's a long way. And, and the birch bark canoes, although perfectly suited to the northern route, they're fragile. And they always carried repair kits of bark and spruce gum and, you know, uh, spruce roots to, to, to stitch them back together. But going up the rapids on the St. Lawrence, they were vulnerable. And they were expensive because, you know, well, they had to, they were the indigenous folks were the ones building them. Yes. And they were slow to build, too. It took, a, you know, probably a couple of weeks uh, at least to build a, a, a reasonable birch bark canoe. Right. So they, I think somebody, somebody smart back... In LaSalle's time or Count Frontenac's time, began to scratch their head because the French were setting up Fort Frontenac, as I say, in the late 1600s, mm-hmm. and they needed a reliable way to get there. And they started to say, well, let's try making one of these things out of wood using conventional European carpentry right, techniques. Right. And so they did. And the, the thing looks in principle, very much like a canoe. It's kind of got a pretty flat bottom. It's yep. pointed at both ends. And so my surmise, and it's just that, is that they decided to try and build a wooden canoe right. that was sturdy enough to bring, and in fact... And bring they ended, a lot more equipment yeah, they, down they with could, them. They, and, and you can imagine as as the west, the upper country, as they called it, from 
from Montreal West began to get more militarized, they needed to haul cannons. And and a 24-pounder iron cannon, which is what they ended up hauling into up up here from Montreal during the War of 1812, you know, weighs a ton and a half or two tons. Wow. And it's pretty that's unwieldy they, thing. You can't, you couldn't haul that up here and it to birch. Has to be nicely balanced on a boat, mm-hmm. doesn't it? That's right. And you couldn't really. It's not very practical to try and haul that up here in a birch bark canoe. No. It was partly military driven too. There, so the government had a fleet of them at right. one point. The New France government. And they were really all-purpose utility vehicles that that proved so suited to the environment. Uh, there's no history of anything exactly like this in France or Britain. And these were adapted and used everywhere in North America. So would they would they then have been used down in the Mississippi area and things like that? Because you talked about how, you know, the, here's Kingston's the gateway. Yeah, many of them were. They, they had to portage to some extent going from Lake Erie down to the Ohio River and then down into the Mississippi. But once they got to Ohio, it was all water all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. And so right. they, they did use bateaus in that section. Mm-hmm. And they used what they call flatboats, which are more square. Because uh, there's a lot of French speaking down in Louisiana. Oh, yeah. And of course, most of them came, or a lot of them came from the Acadia dispersal. But they brought uh, bateau building techniques with them. Right. Yeah, sure. Right. Okay. So you, I think you've actually sort of mentioned this throughout the whole conversation so far of the importance. I mean, so how important were they? Just how important were they? Well, they were. It's hard to. It's hard. It's hard to overstate how Mm. important they were. There were no roads, even long past the end of the War of 1812. The only roads were by water, and and I'm thinking that the most useful way to think of all connecting all these little posts in the Great Lakes and along the St. Lawrence is is that they were actually islands. They were a little archipelago in the interior of North America that you could only get to by water. Right, okay. And the most difficult part of that entire journey is the 180 clicks from Montreal to Kingston. Okay. With these, is that because of all the Thousand Islands and everything? It could easely get lost. Well, well the Thousand Islands were difficult to navigate, but the the big problem was rapids. You right. can't take a sailing mm-hmm. ship up or down these rapids. Right. Um, so the 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 bateaux were the only way, other than birch bark canoes, to haul anything to the Great Lakes. So those um, mariners then must have been awesome. Was it something that got? I guess it's hard to say because there's no full documentation is it something that got passed down from father to son as they were going was it a family i suspect it was most of these uh, men and it was pretty much all men most of these men lived like a lot of the canoe fur trade voyagers Mm -hmm. lived around montreal so the same guys and in the records you see the same names where there are names the same names coming up as bateau conductors and typically what they would do uh, uh, and it depended uh, on you know what time of the season it was. Obviously, in the winter, there's no bateaus coming yes, up the river. Yes. Um, but beginning in April uh, and ending in the end of November, typically, 
um, they would go out and uh, call up men from the farms. Now, if it was planting time or harvest time, they were a lot harder to get a hold of. And Mm -hmm. and when they did call them up, there were protests from everybody right up to the the, uh, lower Canadian government. Is that right? Oh, yeah, because without those guys planting and harvesting, there's no food. It, It was a tricky kind of a thing for the British authorities to balance not having any food with not having any transport up the river yes so they were they were critically important this was the only way west right yeah and so have you found here in kingston any documentation about any of these mariners are the families here now that back their ancestors were these mariners well yes in fact during uh, the war of 1812 i've discovered one one particular family called beaupre Oh, yes. And one of the sons, uh, this, uh, the, the patriarch who didn't come here, but uh, several, at least one or two of his sons got here during the war, probably crewed on one of the British warships and worked in the Royal Dockyard. Okay. And their descendants, I grew up in Collins Bay, and one of our neighbors was named Beaupre. And the daughter and my sister became very close friends. And her father was the head of Pike Salvage. So this, tra- oh. and and I don't know if you've ever been to the Portsmouth Tavern. And, yes. Yeah. Well, that was known as Bope's Tavern, Beaupre's Tavern. Okay. They, the Beaupre family founded it in 1846. Right. And, and actually, uh, I, there is a descendant I've talked to who was born in that, uh, upstairs from the tavern, who's still wow. here. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so, so there's a, a continuous line from these mariners to mm-hmm. the present day, for sure, for sure, in Kingston. That's great. Yeah. See, that's something for us to be proud of it's up a, there. It's a neat story. It yeah, is a very it really neat is. story. Yeah. It's great that you're doing this PhD because obviously it's clearly an area that hasn't been touched and needs to be because of just from what you've told us, there's a lot of information there that could easily be lost if it's not written down now. So better late than never, I guess. <laughs> well, the archives are pretty durable. The, these are British Army archives. Right. The originals are now in Britain, and we have microfiche and digitized some of it, not right. all of it. So right. it's so that helps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that helps. Yeah. But they, these these other books that you've written that got you interested in doing graduate work in the first place, can you just tell me a little bit about that? You are a, a person who likes boats and sailing and things. Is it all, all to do with that? Is it all about Kingston? It's about the folks who came to Kingston. Right. And it, the one book focuses more on the uh, fictional namesake of La Force. Okay. But it's not, generally speaking, a maritime history at all. It is the history, though, of including real-life people like Molly Brandt. Okay. And her brother, Joseph Brandt. And Johnson Street. Who, who was Johnson Street named after? Well, it was one of the heroes in my story. Okay. And William Street okay. was named after his father. These were important people in regional history. So, and I, you know, being a history nut, I, <laughs> the first book I wanted to go back and, and claw my way back in history to yes. sort of something that was the beginning of right, all that. Right, When So it begins in Ireland. Oh, fantastic. Um, and, uh, yeah, because the, there was a lot of Irish here, wasn't there? Oh, there, in well, there were a lot. And, and this a is, lot died here too, didn't Oh, they? yes, With absolutely. And, stuff. And, and that was that was a century later than my story begins. Right. It's a story of a young fella who comes to the wilderness while the United States was still a colony of Britain mm-hmm. and makes his way to fame and fortune. And along the way, he falls in love with and marries a Mohawk princess in real life named Molly Brandt. Fantastic. Uh, and they live together as man and wife. They were married Iroquois style. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this guy was an Anglo-Irish 
not aristocrat, but his uh, cousins were in the Navy. His uncle was in the Navy and had lots of money. Right, right. And he kind of took off on his own in the in to become a fur trader himself. Right. And rose to fame and power. He was once offered the governorship of New York uh, Colony and was an important guy. And and partly, you everyone's heard of Pocahontas and John Smith. Well, this is, this is a lot of that's version. made up. Oh, right. And and this is the Canadian version, and it, none of it has to be made up. Right, it's all... Lady Simcoe was in Kingston in 1796. Her husband, the first governor of Upper Canada, was sick with what sounded like pleurisy, and he was ready to die. He'd, he hadn't slept for weeks, and he couldn't lie down and right. couldn't eat. And so, and so she was at kind of her wit's end. And then somebody mentioned Molly Brandt, who... And this is all fictionalized in my story because right. I wanted to tell stories rather than a yes. history textbook. But it's got the history intertwined. It's the whole all way it's all in there, mm-hmm. and she saved Lord Simcoe's life. And Lady Simcoe's diary is, you know, very easily available. It's in every library as a frontier story. One of the things that really intrigued me was that they were chatting about the good old days before the American Revolution. Right. And William Johnson, Molly's husband, had died just on the eve of the Revolution. So this is 22 years later, and Lady Simcoe report, records in her diary, paraphrasing here, something like, every time we talked about Sir William, Molly's eyes would fill with tears. And I remember thinking, wow, I've been married more than 40 years, <laughs> and I bet 20 years after I'm dead, when my name comes up, my wife's eyes don't fill with tears. <laughs> so this is a, you yes. know, a, a really a true love story mm-hmm. on the frontier that I didn't, I had to make up nothing right in fact in fact and i think a lot of historical novelists find this they have to leave stuff out because nobody will believe it right you know it's it's stranger than fiction see i love historical fiction oh well i i highly recommend my book so what's the name of the book the first one's called the eastern door eastern door okay and we can get it it's there's a copy in stauffer okay and jordan where do i go go to the go to novel idea Oh yes, okay. Uh, uh, okay, he has he has copies, and they can get them, uh, or you can go on Amazon and look them up and order them direct. Brilliant, brilliant. So hear that, everyone. If you want to read a bit of historical fiction, I, I didn't mean to really come here to pitch. No, but, I know, but it's good. But it's good. Uh, but it fits, that, it and fit. that's how I discovered my interest in these. French Canadian Mariners is through that research. Which is fantastic. So, David, absolutely awesome chatting with you. For those people who haven't heard me before, I love history. And so anything like this is just awesome for me. I can really get my teeth into it. So thank you very much for coming on and and sharing not only what you're doing in your graduate studies, but your other research that you're doing into into some of your books as well. And, And good luck with those books. I hope people go out and buy them. So thanks for coming on the show today. That's it, everyone. A another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. Just type in a grad chat. Until next week. This is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. 
Infrastructure support for the CFRC Podcast Project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.